Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Good morning. Good to be back with you. I'll be here this week or next week, and uh, then we'll be taking a break for a little bit. We have to cover much ground in terms of verse-by-verse progression in Revelation, but we'll eventually get to the end of this book. This is message 138 in our first by-verse study. And it's been a joy to see where God takes us other places in His Word. The greatest protection against falling into false teaching or false doctrine in God's Word is to let the Scriptures interpret the Scriptures. Not man-made opinion, not the trends of the day, but the Scriptures to interpret Scriptures. And when Scripture interprets Scripture, when you allow the plain and the simple to shed light on what is obscure, then there are no contradictions. There are no doubts about what is right or wrong. And there is no doubt that the Scripture can be trusted. Last week we talked about biblical chronology. It had been requested of me that I put some of the things I had been talking about down on paper to give you kind of a better understanding of how we come to date things in the Scripture from events in Israel all the way back to the creation of the world. When a lot of people here, a Christian, argue that the world is only about 6,000 years old, they laugh and think we're fools. I believe the biblical chronology, whether you do or not, I believe it to be true. And I believe that in matters of chronology, we can trust the Scriptures just as much as we trust John 3.16. And so when the biblical chronology puts the creation of the world at approximately 4004 B.C., I believe that, and I don't believe that contradicts observable science. I'm not anti-science. Science means knowledge, okay? Ciencia in Spanish means knowledge. Science is the pursuit of knowledge, okay? The scientific method is a reasonable and logical pursuit of knowledge that requires observational evidence. And when we observe evidence before us, instead of philosophizing about things we can't know for sure, then reasonable, observable scientific evidence agrees time and time again with the Scriptures. Way back years ago, one of the first times I ever preached in this fellowship to you guys, we talked about chronology, and we talked about how Satan attacks the biblical chronology, and how Satan uses the modern man-made theory of, of humanistic evolution to undermine the scriptures. And I showed you, we talked about observable scientific data that proves, doesn't suggest, but proves a young age for the earth. But this runs in conflict with everything you hear in the schools and nobody questions it. Nobody just accepts what they say is true. We, we live in an age where we just believe what we hear. We believe it sadly in the news media, in society, in the schools. And a lot of times, sadly, we believe it just because a guy behind a pulpit says it. You shouldn't just be accepting what I say up here. You should be searching the scriptures to see if these things are true. What I preach to you I may not be dogmatic about every detail, but I obviously believe that what I'm preaching to you is right. Or I wouldn't preach it. I obviously believe my opinion is right. And unless you can show me with scripture and or logic that I'm wrong, I'm going to stand on it. 
We live in a day where to believe you're right is some sort of crime. If I take a stand on Facebook about something, it's suddenly a crime. It was a crime that I saw in a Whole Foods market somewhere up in New York, a bum off the street, not a homeless man, a bum, off the street, came in and just started digging in the food bar and feeding his face, and then the rat bum employees sat there and looked at it and thought it was funny. And that's the society we live in. And oh my goodness, the preacher said bum and the word rat bum. And it's just such a criminal act. That's the society we live in. We live in a society where people are afraid to speak the truth. Where they equate cowardice with righteousness. And where they apologize for even having an opinion. That's not what you're going to find in this church body. And that's not what you're going to find in this body. If I didn't believe what I was sharing with you then you should tar and feather me and kick me out the front door and never let me back in. Let me tell you another thing. If somebody were to come in this door and to pull out a firearm and start shooting, if you were to see me drop to the floor and crawl and hide like the pastor down in Texas, then I would expect you to kick me out of the front door and never let me come back in here again. Not only do I believe what I preach, but I also believe that as I stand here in this pulpit, it is my duty before God to watch over you spiritually and physically. I'm not the pastor of this church. I don't claim to be on the side of it. You have elders here who, who teach in my absence. But we view the teaching of the Word of God as a shepherding position. And as a shepherd, I should be willing to go and meet the wolf and the bear to protect my flock. Just as King David, not to run high. There's a lot of weakness in the church today and in our society today, but not everywhere. Some of us are determined not to be weak in the face of evil. So I want you to know you're protected here. Amen. You're protected here, guys. Children, visitors, we, we, we will protect you. What happened in Texas won't happen here. I know, for one, we have an expert marksman in this congregation who wins contests all the time. It won't happen here. And if it does, it will happen over our dead bodies. Because we're here to protect you, both spiritually and physically. And I want you to feel safe. I want you to feel safe, but I also want you to be convicted by the preaching of God's Word. Okay? We ought to love one another enough that we're willing to speak the truth. Not just to capitulate to what's comfortable or what makes us feel good. When I read God's Word, I don't want to read what makes me feel good. I want to read what points me to my Savior and draws me closer to Him. And requires me to change my ways. We need to change our ways. And, if we have, if, if, and that begins with trusting God's Word. Making it the authority in all matters of faith and practice. And I believe we can do that. Not only in the sermons of Jesus Christ in the red letters, but in the history contained therein and in the chronology. We can trust it. The Bible proves itself. It's a book of integrity. In fact, I would say, if you want to know what's going to happen in 2020 and the years ahead, both for America and for this world, pick up a Bible. It's like reading the headline news. All of these things were written all of these things must happen. The world is going to pop. But it doesn't mean we have to be cowards. I think it was the mother of 
the renowned first um, president of the Republic of Texas. His name was Sam Houston. Houston, Texas is named after him. Uh, she made this comment to him when she sent him out young in his life. He went out to serve in the Army, fought in the U.S. Army. Uh, said something along the lines of, I would rather all of my sons fill one honorable grave than for one of them to turn his back and run to save his own skin. And remember, while my cottage or my home is always open to brave men, it's eternally shut to cowards. We need not be cowardly in this day and time. We need not apologize for the scriptures or things like biblical chronology. We need not be cowards. When we look at the, the list of those who are cast into the lake of fire that we're going to see later in Revelation, what's number one on the list? The cowards. The cowards. Our Lord wasn't a coward. The disciples and the apostles weren't cowards. Had they been, we wouldn't even have a New Testament. Our spiritual forefathers, all through the dark ages and under the iron hand of the Catholic Church, weren't cowards. Those that fled to these shores to practice and preach the gospel and the scriptures weren't cowards. Why should we be? I think we're all coming to a place in our society where we're going to have to choose to take a stand and sacrifice or to be a coward. And I hope and pray that day by God's grace that I don't, I'm not found a coward. If I am, then I have no right to stand here and teach you. I have no right to do so. But anyway, let's get to this little handout. If you have it, I don't want to get too in-depth. We were talking last week just about, I wanted to explain to you, it was requested of me, so we sidestepped a bit. I wanted to explain to you how we come to a biblical chronology that dates the year of the 4004 B.C. And in doing so, we talked about um, some astral phenomena that was observed in the, in, in the skies in the ancient history. And we can go back via mathematics and we can verify whether these observations are true. And we looked at some things that prove when certain events happened in the Bible. We talked about three main bridges between the Bible's chronology and secular history that can be verified. They give us a starting place for dating biblical events. We talked about... Uh, in Israel, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom used different methods for dating the reigns of their kings. The southern kingdom was much like we in the United States. A president is elected in November of a specific year. When our current president, President Trump, was elected, it was in November of 16. 2016 is not counted as one of the president's presidential years. He is the president-elect until January 20th of 2017. So his presidency doesn't begin until 2017. 17, 18, 19, 20. That's how the kings of Judah dated the reigns of their kings. They ascended to the throne, and then their reign began after the new year, the following year. And then we talked about the kings of Israel who wanted to pad their resumes, and you had different dynasties coming and going because of their rebellion against the Lord. As soon as a king came to the throne, if he came to the throne in December 31st of a particular year, then it was counted that entire year as part of his reign. So what you had is the last year of a king and the first year of the next king were often the same year. And so we looked at some of those things. 
And then we looked at the proof of, of that to be true there in the Scriptures. And then I wanted to show you an interesting prophecy in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 4, in which the prophet literally lays out the entire history of Israel from the division of the kingdom after Solomon all the way until the temple is destroyed in 70 A.D. So we have a long period of time, 975 B.C. until 70 A.D. So the prophet lays out a thousand years of history, most of it from the time he gave it, or, or, or a good part of it from the time he gave it in the past, but looking forward. And you can go and read through some of those things. Um, the prophet was told to construct a model of the city of Jerusalem, kind of like a Lego model. There weren't Legos back then, but he was told to build him a little model and show the city of Jerusalem under siege by an enemy. And then he was to do this in front of the people. These were people that had been taken captive, and it was about six years before the temple and the city would be destroyed. So these were Jews who were like, okay, we've been taken captive, but it's all going to work out. It's all going to work out. We'll get to go home. This isn't some great judgment. And God called the prophet there to ensure these people that know it's not going to be all right. You're not going home. And I'm going to destroy the city and the temple and you're going to pay for your sins. You and your forefathers stood in the wilderness and bragged about how everything God tells us we're going to do. And you've refused to do it. And you're going to pay for it. And so the prophet was told to lay on his left side for 390 days. That was to be a picture of Israel's sin. And then he was to turn over to his right side for 40 days. I don't know about you, but that doesn't seem too entertaining or fun to be called by God as a prophet or a preacher to lay on your side for 430 days. Now, I don't know if that was 24 hours, it was an 8-hour workday. I don't know what that is. But that's not fun. God called people to do some crazy things. When God calls us, we should obey. He's never going to call us to do something against His Word. Never. Okay? He's not going to call a man and a man to get married because that's an abomination according to God. I didn't say that. He says it multiple times in His Word. So God doesn't call us to do things against His Word. But He called the prophet to do this as a testimony to the captives concerning their sin and what God was going to do. 390 days, each day was to stand for a year. And the 390 day period was to stand for Israel's years of iniquity. And at the end of that 390 period, the temple would be destroyed and the city would be overrun by an invader. That would happen about six years after this prophecy. And if we take Ezekiel's prophecy of 390 days from the destruction of the temple, 390 years goes back to when the kingdom was divided after Solomon. When the kingdom was divided, Israel fell into sin. She set up those false gods. And that sin infected the northern tribes and the tribe of Judah all the way down until the Babylonian captivity and the destruction of the temple. So we have a 390-day period in this prophecy that verifies the period of time from the first year of the king of Judah, Jeroboam, all the way until the last king, his 11th year. And you can go through and you can read how we come to this calculation, how we can go from the destruction of the temple back to 
the division of the kingdom at the death of Solomon. Very interesting, and it shows the Bible's chronology to be correct. Now, the second part of that Ezekiel prophecy is somewhat obscure. So you have a 390-year period that ends with the destruction of the temple and the city. And then you're told there's another 40-year period. Judgment against the sin of Judah, the southern kingdom, that ends likewise with a destruction of the temple and of the city. Now, Jesus Christ was crucified on Passover in A.D. 30, fulfilling the Feast, feast, feast of Passover. We can date this based on one of those bridges that exists between biblical and secular history. He was buried on the Feast of Eleven Bread, and he was resurrected on the Feast of First Fruits. And then we're told in the book of Acts that he showed himself alive by many infallible proofs for 40 days. For 40 days, the resurrected Lord Jesus walked the earth and showed himself alive to a host of Jewish witnesses. They saw him with their own eyes. They sat with him. They ate with him. They listened to his preaching. At one point, he preached to a group of 500 Jewish eyewitnesses on a mountain in Galilee. Many infallible proofs. No question, based on eyewitness testimony, that he had risen from the dead. He did this for 40 days to the people of Israel, and then he ascended back to heaven on the Mount of Olives. He'll come back to earth on the Mount of Olives, we're told in the prophets. Ten days later, ten days after his ascension, fifty days after his resurrection was the Feast of Pentecost, and that's when the Holy Spirit came down. From Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came down and bore witness that this Christ was the Jewish Messiah. Forty years after Pentecost, on A.D. 70, the Romans besieged Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. God gave Israel 390 years to repent when she turned from him after the division of the kingdom. She refused to. The city was destroyed, as was the temple. God gave his people 40 years to repent after the Messiah rose from the dead, what he had to do, after the Spirit came, Israel refused to repent. And that 40-year period ended with, again, the destruction of the temple and the, and the city at the hands of the Romans. So we have an incredible prophecy that was literally fulfilled in human history. It's interesting that The Jewish religious traditions that are written down, we call these the Talmud or the Talmudines, they talk about how 40 years prior to the destruction of the temple in AD 70, that the chief light on the menorah, the menorah in the temple was a seven-branch candlestick that stands for the seven days of creation, not the nine-branch candlestick of Hanukkah. And it was written or recorded that mysteriously this chief light at the top of the menorah, which was supposed to be lit all day, would just blow out for no reason. There was no draft. There was plenty of oil. But during that 40-year period after Christ returned to heaven, it would just blow out. And we're also told by one of the Jewish historians that lived at the time the Romans destroyed Jerusalem. He actually watched it with his own eyes. And, and, and was commissioned to write these things down. 
You can read these historical accounts in the English language today. He recorded that during that 40 years, something else weird would happen in the temple. There was great brass doors that took 20 men to open and close. And they would open them during the day and close them in the night. And on multiple occasions during this 40 years after Christ returned home to heaven, these doors would just be found open the next morning. And they don't know why. Now, I'm not speaking that as if it's biblical truth, but God was giving Israel an opportunity to repent for their crime of rejecting His Messiah. The veil was torn when Christ hung on the cross. The doors would open. The light would go out 40 years. And she refused to heed the preaching of the apostles and the prophets, and the city was destroyed. God does what He says He's going to do. And when He gives prophecy, it's fulfilled literally... And it encompasses large periods of time. That's why God in Isaiah 45 challenges the people that doubt Him. I write history beforehand. Which of your gods, which of your prophets can do that? God's Word calls people by name hundreds of years before they're born. Minute details about the life of Messiah fulfilled and observed and written down in the life of Jesus. The Bible can be trusted, and its chronology can be trusted. When God gives us opportunity to repent, He's patient, not willing that any should perish. But the time comes when that patience run, runs out, and righteousness is exalted. And that's what ultimately happens for the earth when Christ comes back. God's patience is finished, and He comes to judge the world in righteousness. For those who trust in Him, we can escape these things and rule and reign with Him. Those things kind of set the stage for how we date events in the Old Testament. So again, I, I don't know if this handout confuses you more or helps you understand these things. But I just want to give you a quick rundown of the chronology because... I believe the millennial reign of Christ is a thousand year period of peace that was appointed for this earth the day that Adam fell in the Garden of Eden. God created this world. It was good. Our first father and our first mother were innocent. But they turned away from God's word. Man fell and this creation was cursed. In the sweat of man's brow, he provides for himself. Thorns and thistles. Death came into this society and into this planet. And ever since, even creation groans. When we see weird things happening, like strange winters, tumbleweeds that make a barrier across a highway in Washington that <coughs> cars can't even get past, weird wildfires in, in, in Australia at a strange time of year, these things aren't indicative of man-made global warming or man-made climate change, we really don't have as much power as we think we do. This is creation groaning. Even more so as the day of its redemption is not. And when Christ comes to set up His kingdom, the earth finally has Sabbath rest. When God created the world, He worked six days, He rested on the Sabbath. This earth has been toiling under the curse of sin for nearly 6,000 years. That seventh millennium will be the earth's Sabbath rest. 
And I believe it's at the doors. You say, well, wait, wait, wait a minute. If the earth was created in 4004 BC, we're 2020. We're, we're past your dates. Well, no, we've shown where the, the, the calendar has issues. And we don't know when Adam fell. We know when Adam was created. But he may have lived in the garden 100 years before he turned his back on God and then blamed God. Keep in mind, when they were caught, the woman blamed the serpent. Adam didn't blame his wife, as you've probably been told. Go back and look at what he says. He does what man has always wanted to do. He blamed God. It's the woman you gave me, God, that made me do it. That's what we do. We blame God. Something bad happens to us. And we think that such a bad thing has never happened to anybody, that we're special, and, and uh, it's never happened to anybody before, and then suddenly we want to blame God for it. We don't care about what God says. We don't care about what God <laughs> convicts us to do when things are good. But when it's bad, it doesn't matter what we turn our back on. That's what man's done from day one. But the day's coming when there will be rest from these things. The earth's Sabbath rest. And I believe we can't know the day or the hour, but we can know the season. And it's coming. And creation grows. But real quick, I want to review how we come to this date of creation. We're going to work backward from a very important date in history. Now, keep in mind the BCAD thing. Men have not used that. That's something that came into being much later in the Middle Ages, where we date things based on the event of Christ. However, it can be demonstrated and proven that Christ wasn't born in year zero. There was no year zero. He was born in 4 BC, or before that, because Herod the king died on around Passover 4 BC. So this is a man-made dating system, but it is what we date things on today. Our date is 2020 AD. Okay? Some calendars around the world date from what they believe is the founding of the world. Other calendars date other ways, but this is a man-made dating system that we can use to, to date events based on our dating system. So 586 B.C. is the year that what major thing happened in the city of Jerusalem? The temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. We can verify this date to be true by lunar eclipses and things and alignments in the heavens that were noted by people living at that time that would not be repeated for centuries or decades. Based on calculating the reigns of the kings of Judah... We come to 390 years. And this is verified by the prophet Ezekiel's prophecy. 390 days for 390 years of uh, Israel's sins. So in the 390th year would bring us to the year 975 B.C. So in the, in the 390th year, that would be uh, uh, inclusive. So what happened in this year? The kingdom was divided between Israel and Judah after the death of Solomon. The kingdom was divided. It was judgment because he had listened to his wives and allowed them to follow their false gods. And it turned from the Lord, even though the Lord had appeared to him. We're told in two places in the scriptures that Solomon reigned for 40 years. He was king for 40 years. And so this puts the death of David and the ascension of Solomon to the throne in 1015 
B, C. In 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1, we're told that Solomon began doing something very important that God commanded him to do. He began building the temple in the fourth year of his reign. Not after four years, after three years, in the fourth year, he started the construction of the temple. So we have to minus three years, and we come to 1012 B.C. is when the temple construction began. The first temple. The second temple was built after the Babylonians' uh, captivity was over. There is a third temple that will be built by Messiah himself. What Israel's trying to do today in the land is not something God commanded them to do. What they don't understand is what they're building will be the seat of Antichrist. They're going to wake up one way or another and some dark days are coming. 1012 B.C., the construction of the first temple begins. We're told in this same passage in 1 Kings that in the fourth year of Solomon's reign, the temple began and that this was also in the 480th year after the Exodus. So in the 480th year, we subtract 479 years. And we come to a date of 1491 B.C. 1491 B.C. is the date that Israel came out of Egypt. It's kind of hard to write upside down. 1491 B.C. is the Exodus. We're told in two places, in both Exodus and Galatians, that between the covenant God made with Abraham... And the Exodus was a period of 430 years. So, if we add 430, we come to uh, 1921 B.C. is the year that God appeared to Abraham. What did he tell him to do? Leave his country and go into a land that I have called you. And God made a covenant with him. God made a covenant with Abraham in 1921 B.C. You can find this in Genesis 12. One of the things God made very clear is I will bless you and your descendants and I will, I will bless those that bless you and your descendants and I will curse those that curse you and your descendants. Abraham's descendants are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This covenant was confirmed in them. Jacob is the father of the 12 tribes of Israel and the father of the Jewish people. Being Jewish is not a religion even though the rabbis teach that. Jewishness is an ethnicity, and it's a fulfillment of a covenant God made with Abraham. Okay? Those that bless Israel and the Jewish people will be blessed. Those that curse them will be cursed. You're not going to find anti-Semitism in this church body. You're not going to find it, because we fear God. It's not that we think Jews are better than Gentiles, or they get saved a different way. They don't. But you're not going to find anti-Semitism in here, because we believe God. Amen. That's why our missions ministry focuses primarily on going to Jewish people and telling them the truth about their Messiah, something their rabbis won't tell them. Because we believe God's words. We come to 1921 B.C., and what do we know from here? Well, we know that Abraham was 75 years old when he entered the land of Canaan. This is in Genesis 12, 4. So we have to add 75 years. 
We know based on a few verses in Genesis and comparing them together that Abraham's father, Terah, was 130 years old when Abraham was born. And then when we go to Genesis 11, it gives us a very detailed chronology from the flood, from Noah's son all the way to Abraham, how old people were when their son was born. And so we add all these together and we come up with 222 years from the time Abraham was born back to the, the end of the flood from Shem. And so when we add these numbers to 1921 B.C., we come to 2348 B.C. is the year of the flood. Now what's interesting archaeologically is that records of human history only go back according to scientific dating methods which are largely unreliable in terms of long periods of time. But they're quite reliable in terms of recent history when we date things according to thousands of years. But human history or its preservation only goes back about two to 3,000 B.C. There are no historical records preserved before that. Now that would make sense if the world was flooded in 2348 B.C., we shouldn't see historical records that predate this. And this is a problem for the evolutionists because modern secular evolutionary theory suggests that men and women in their present state, homo sapiens is what they call us, that we've existed for about 300,000 years in this form. Before that, we were a little bit more like monkeys all the way back to ape swings in the trees. Okay? So we, we're just like we are, according to them, for about 300,000 years. Well, if that's the case, then why of those 300,000 years does written documentation only show up about 3,000 years ago? So we've been in this state for 297,000 years and only... Or I'm sorry, 200 and this would be 3,000 BC, so uh, about 5,000 years ago. So we've been in this state for 195,000 years, and we didn't figure out how to write and put it down on paper until 5,000 years ago. And then suddenly we're all we're carrying iPhones in our pockets. I mean, come on, it's foolishness. It's a house of cards. But 2348 is the date of the flood, and there's plenty of observational scientific evidence in the geologic table that will confirm this to be accurate, as does archaeology. <coughs> then if we look at Genesis 5, we learn the lifespans of the patriarchs before the flood, from Adam down to Noah. We know when Adam was born, we know how old he was when Seth was born, we don't know how old he was when the fall came. And this brings us to 4004 B.C., those patriarchs' lifespans include 1,656 years. This brings us to 4004 B.C., which is the date of creation according to our dating system. I believe it's accurate. I'm not going to stand here and go through a list of scientific evidence that might confuse you, but it's there. Population growth statistics proves it. The average rate of population growth has been measured for centuries. And where we are today is where we should be based upon average population growth if the world started over in 2348 B.C. with the flood. 
That's just one of many examples. The magnetic field of the earth that baffles scientists even today. The shrinking size of the sun. The earth's slowing uh, rotation on its axis. You can look at like the Mississippi River Delta. Fossil evidence. Um, human historical accounts. All sorts of things point to the young age of the earth. And I believe we can trust this. I believe it's accurate. I don't believe B.C. and A.D. is 100% accurate in terms of, of uh, whether or not our calendar is exactly right. A calendar can't be exactly right because of the rotation of the earth around the sun is not exactly anything. It's not exactly 365.25 days. It's like 365.2 number, 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 number. And so the calendar, given enough time, has to be changed. That's why we use a Gregorian calendar today and not a Julian calendar. But the earth has been around for approximately 6,000 years. We're <coughs> approaching 6,000 years since Adam fell in the garden. And therefore, we can rest assured that the earth's Sabbath rest is coming. The Bible speaks of a rest that remains to the people of God who already have spiritual rest in the Messiah. The Bible speaks of the kingdom of Jesus Christ being a glorious rest here on earth. And it also gives us a glimpse in the scriptures of what life will be like during this thousand year reign of Christ. And that's what I want to do going forward. This Sabbath rest is coming. It gives us hope. There's great judgment. There's great tribulation and anguish that's coming beforehand to judge the world and to wake up the nation of Israel. I don't believe the church will be here for that. The scriptures teach that Christ will come and take His bride out and then we will return with Him when He sets up His kingdom. Those that are left behind will endure. And we've been reading and studying these things in Revelation. It's not tricky language. It's not dark secrets. It's not mysterious analogy. It's pretty literal and simple. We can trust these things. What I would like to do is... Um, well, I, I, I'm not even recording this, I just realized. I, I've had all of these messages online going back to the first one, and I meant to start my voice recorder, and I didn't. So, Jason, I'm going to have to rely on your... Uh, you're filming of this to give me some audio <laughs> later. So hopefully we have a backup here. Um, I want to look going forward before we proceed in Revelation the next couple of Sundays. I want to give you some snapshots of Christ's coming kingdom from the Old Testament. We've looked at what Revelation says a thousand years. The saints will live and reign with Christ. We've talked about Sabbath rest for the earth. I want to give you some snapshots from the Old Testament. And I want to do it in the same way Ezekiel did it for the captives. Ezekiel told the captives through, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, look, this is not going to uh, work itself out in the near future. You might as well get, may as well get comfortable here in Babylon because you're not going home. And we know part of that was that Israel's land could enjoy its Sabbath rest. But God didn't leave the people in despair. The latter chapters of Ezekiel, after pronouncing judgment on the people, give a distant hope to the Jewish people there in captivity that this is one day what the kingdom's going to look like. And so, snapshots of future 
prophecy give us hope in dark days. So I'm not here to just lay something out academically. I want to give you some snapshots of what awaits the righteous to strengthen <laughs> you so that you won't be cowards in dark days. So let's consider the millennial kingdom, its character, its traits. And we're just going to take a couple of snapshots from the Old Testament. Turn to Daniel chapter 2. The very first thing that we can say about Christ's coming kingdom, he does live and reign in the hearts of his saints today. And he reigns in the hearts of the church. But he is coming to reign literally on the throne of David. Just like the angel told Mary when, she, when Gabriel appeared to her that he, God's going to give him this child in your womb, the throne of his father David. The millennial kingdom is a literal kingdom. It's not a dark symbol or some spiritual analogy of something uh, symbolic. It is a literal kingdom. I'm going to ask for some help this morning in reading scriptures. Turn to Daniel chapter 2, and I'm going to ask Daniel to read verses 34 and 35, and verses 44 and 45. Remember, this is a dream Nebuchadnezzar had, and Daniel was commissioned with interpreting it. And this dream gives a picture of all of Gentile world history. The rise of Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. And this would all be fulfilled literally, and we can study it looking back. And so, Daniel, if you will read those verses. Thou sawest till that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay, and brake them to pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together, and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away, that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Okay, so we had this image that represented Gentile kingdoms. A stone cut without hands crashed into that image in the foot, in the feet, destroyed it. And that stone became a mighty mountain and consumed man-made <coughs> kingdoms and became a kingdom itself. So that's what Nebuchadnezzar saw. Now in these later verses, Daniel's going to give the interpretation of what that means, 44 and 45. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom, which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter. And the dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof sure. The dream is certain, and what I'm telling you is true. Human history proved it to be true. Just like Nebuchadnezzar saw, after his kingdom arose another, the Persian kingdom. After them arose another. And then arose the fourth kingdom, the Romans. Just like he said, 
We can look back on history and see Daniel's interpretation to be true. Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus, Alexander the Great, the Caesars, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome, these all prove to be very literal. <clears throat> Thus, the stone kingdom that takes the place of the Gentile kingdoms in the days of these kings, it says, in this present creation, in the same days that these kingdoms have arisen, and unlike them, is literal. Why would all of it be literal and the last kingdom be not literal? It's literal. And unlike these other kingdoms that tried to conquer the entire world, this kingdom will truly be worldwide. It will fill the earth. Christ's kingdom will be earthly, visible, dominant, worldwide, and millennial. A thousand years before God destroys this planet and creates a new heaven and a new earth. It says it is not going to be left to other people. In other words, this isn't going to be a kingdom that starts like David's kingdom and then he dies and it goes to Solomon and then Solomon turns his back on God and the kingdom is left to lesser men. It won't be like that. It won't be like the remnants of the Greek empire left to the Romans to build their empire. It won't be like the United States today where our republic was founded by God-fearing men who understood human nature, who understood the need for accountability, who understood that without God in the Bible you could not rightly govern the world. And this republic was then left to lesser men like we have today. It won't be like that. It'll be one dynasty and one king. A continuing and consistent government ruled and administrated by resurrected and immortal rulers who will not die and pass it on. Not only Christ himself, but also his saints who will live and reign with him in their resurrection bodies. So this kingdom is a literal kingdom. This kingdom will not be a democracy. It will be a theocracy. In a democracy, the people vote to elect their leadership. In a theocracy, God elects the leader. So it's not the people that choose their leader, it's God that does it. In Israel, the people wanted a king. God, we want a king, we want a nap. Even though God told the people, Moses told them that kings will sit on a throne in Israel, but they weren't content. They wanted it now. And so they chose Saul. God allowed it, and that story didn't end very well. God had elected David. But God chooses the leader, and that leader is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. We see this in the book of Psalms, the great messianic psalm, Psalm chapter or Psalm 2. God says this in verse 6. Yet I have set my king upon my holy hill, hill of Zion. I've chosen the king, and I've set him on the throne. I will declare the decree. The Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. 
So the kings of the earth want to overthrow God's rule. God laughs at them. God laughs at them. There's two things the Bible tells us God laughs about. He laughs at the idea, or he laughs at men who think they can actually overthrow his rule in this earth. The second thing he laughs at is he laughs at those who actually think they can overcome the righteous. God laughs at that because God sees the day of wicked people coming. The wicked in this country that want to take away our freedoms, that want to stamp out Christianity and the Bible, God laughs at that because He sees their day that is coming. And precious in the eyes of the Lord is the death of His saints. Make no mistake, I don't consider myself a political person. Politics can't fix this country. But there should be no question in your mind as to what the purpose of all of this nonsense in Washington is. It's to silence you and it's to stamp out any remnant of faith and fear of God in this country. Amen. Now, I don't know what you think about the president. He is not a messiah. He doesn't do everything right. I certainly have my issues with him. I wish there'd be a little less tweeting and a little more doing. But he's not an enemy of the church. He's not an enemy of Christians. And the enemy, he's an enemy of those who want to eradicate us. And the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Now, he, he may wake up one day and totally change his, the color of his, or what's a better than that? That's not a good enough. He may change his whole mind because he's a man and men can't be trusted. Governments can't be trusted. Our founding fathers said that. I'm not advocating you should ever trust our government. We should pray for them. We should be wary. But um, we should be thankful when we see things that act to protect our interests. The other side wants us gone. They want us dead. We better wake up and see that. We can't be cowards in the face of that. That kind of cowardly thinking pervaded Jewish society in Europe in the 1930s. Kind of like the Jews that have been taken care of. Oh, it'll get better. Yeah, this is kind of hard. They're, patting, they're making us wear these yellow stars. But, you know, just chill out. It's going to all be okay. It'll all go away. Warning sign after warning sign after warning sign. And then one morning they woke up and went back to the ovens. It's sad. The naivete that won't wake up and see that we're on the eve of destruction. We can't be judgmental of that because we're the same way. Only a fool judges Israel's history. A wise man learns from it. But God, one day, thankfully, is going to put his king on the throne. And his king is going to rule and reign. God laughs at the idea that this can be overthrown. And at the end of this psalm, it says this. Kiss the son. Who is the son? The son is the son of God, the Messiah that God puts on the throne. Kiss him lest he be angry and you perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. Salvation is by putting one's trust in God's anointed king, Jesus Christ the Messiah. Today and then. This will be a theocracy. It won't be a theocracy in the sense of God ruling over his people through the mediation of men like the Old Testament judges. 
and the kings. This will be God in the flesh ruling. Jesus the Christ. One Lord and His name one. In Zechariah 14, we're told, well, this, that's one of the uh, main uh, chapters in the Old Testament that details the millennium. And we're going to look at the whole chapter at, at a time in the future. But Zechariah chapter 14 describes the earth during the reign of Messiah. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. That word Lord there in all caps is Jehovah or Yahweh. I am the name whereby God revealed himself to Moses. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day there shall be one Lord and his name one. What is particularly interesting is the word here in the Hebrew language. The language in which the Old Testament was originally written. The word for one is a Hebrew word, echad. It means one. Unity. Unified oneness. It's the same word we hear or see in Deuteronomy 6, the great Shema of Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Now there's another word in Hebrew that's never used in reference to God. It's called Yahid. And it means solitary oneness. One. Solitary oneness. But the word used for God, Echad, is also used in some other places in the Old Testament to give us a clue about what it means. The Jew would say, well, God can't have a son because the Lord our God is one Lord. Yahid. Oneness. He can't have a son. There can't be a trinity. But the word in the scriptures, both here in Zechariah and elsewhere, is the same word that's used to describe one day. And the evening and the morning were one day. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall join himself unto his wife, and the two shall be one echad flesh. God is one in the sense that a husband and wife are one, and in the sense that an evening and a morning make one day. So the very word that's used here to describe God's oneness is exactly what is indicated when God is called Elohim. It's a plural name. God is God, one Lord, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Or the Lord, the Word of the Lord, and the Spirit of the Lord. Those names in the Old Testament. So, the Lord will be king over all the earth. He will be one Lord and His name one. That is God, the Son, reigning, who has been elected by God the Father. One Lord, one God. Now, I like to use some of these passages when talking to Jewish folks about the Messiah because many of them say, well, God can't have a son. Well, the if God can't have a son, then who was Adam's father? Because Adam didn't have an earthly father. God made him. And even their own genealogies in Genesis tell us that. But the son is referred to here in Psalm 2. In Proverbs, the writer says, what is God's name and what is his son's name? But in Isaiah, 
in a couple of different places, God makes it very clear to the people of Israel. 42.8 I am the Lord. That is my name. And my glory will I not give to another. In other words, I'm the Lord and I'm not going to share my glory with anyone. Isaiah 48 verse 11 says the same thing. I will not give my glory to anyone else. So God makes it very clear He's not going to share His glory or give it to anyone else. But if we go to Daniel, the exact same vision that Nebuchadnezzar saw as a statue or an image with different types of metals, Daniel sees it later as perverse beasts coming out of the sea that represent the same man-made Gentile kingdoms. Man sees his glory as a great image, gold, silver, brass, and iron. What God sees, however, is a beastly, monstrous thing. Often what is esteemed in the eyes of men is an abomination in the eyes of God. But in Daniel 7, where the prophet is shown the exact same thing, he had, uh, the exact same kingdoms that he had interpreted for Nebuchadnezzar, it is this messianic kingdom of the Messiah is referenced. In Daniel 7, 13 and 14, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days. That's a name for God. And they brought Him near before Him. And there was given Him dominion and glory and a kingdom. That all people, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and His kingdom which shall not be destroyed. Well, wait a minute, I thought God said He's not going to share His glory with another. And yet here, He gives His glory to the Messiah. So either God's a liar or the Messiah is the Son of God. He is God. God won't share His glory with another but He gives His glory to the Messiah. Now, Jesus, when he was being tried before the religious leaders, after being staying up all night, interrogated, you know, I heard the comparison made recently. And in some senses, it's true. The comparison was made by a Republican congressman that the impeachment hearings against President Trump uh, were just like the trials of Jesus. There was, there was no more evidence in, the, in the, the, the trial or the impeachment hearings of President Trump than there were in the trials of Jesus. And a lot of people kind of you know, flew off the handle. How dare you compare the president to Jesus? And the person who said it wasn't doing that. And the point was true. But there's a big difference between what's being done to our president and what was done to Jesus Christ. And the difference isn't in what they were accused of necessarily. The difference is in how they responded. The big difference between our president and Jesus the Christ, we could learn from. In the face of false accusation, Jesus didn't see the need to sit up all night and tweet and defend himself. He didn't defend himself. He didn't have to. Guys, we don't always have to be defending ourselves. The Bible says let others do it for us. That's a lesson our president needs to learn. Stop staying up so late and tweeting through the night and put your trust in the Lord. And stop trying to defend yourself. Big difference. Our Lord didn't have to do it. He proved who he was. 
And so when they tried to trap him in his trials, the, the high priest just got so mad, he slammed his fist down and said, I want to ask you plainly, I want a clear answer. Tell us if you're the Messiah or not. Jesus didn't feel the need to make a case. He had proved he was the Messiah. He had walked the earth for three and a half years healing and doing the very signs on a more incredible scale than even the prophets that they claimed to believe. Than even the prophets. You know, Elisha the prophet was able to multiply uh, uh, the widow's oil. Or he was able to increase a little bit of food so that all the sons of the prophets and their families could eat off just a little bit of food. And all the religious leaders, you know, the prophets, and we believe them and all that. Jesus comes, and he multiplies a few loaves of bread and feeds 5,000 men, not to include their women and children. He does the exact same miracles that the prophets, that they claim to believe, did on a much larger scale, and they rejected it. And then Jesus pointed out their hypocrisy. Your fathers killed the prophets, and then you people build tombs to honor them and claim you believe them. And yet you don't believe me and I'm doing the same thing. But Jesus didn't feel the need to defend himself. Tell us if you're the Messiah. He said, so say you. That's what you say. But I will tell you this. The time is coming when you're going to see the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. That's all he said. He responded by quoting this passage from Daniel 7. And then what happened? The high priest tore his clothes. We don't need any more evidence. We have the proof right here. They know that verse is talking about the Messiah. Jesus claimed it for himself and let God's word defend him. And they wanted to kill him. They hated him for it. The Messiah that comes is not just a man. He's one with whom God shares his glory. And yet God said he won't share his glory with another. But he'll share it with his son. God the Father will share it with the Son. This will be a theocracy in which the Son of God rules as God in the flesh on earth, coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, our founding fathers, when they founded this nation, they did not establish a democracy. That is a falsehood. Our Constitution is a representative and constitutional republic whereby the people elect Leaders to represent them. We have built-in protections against what's called the tyranny of a majority. You know, people just flap off at the mouth about a lot of things they don't understand. Do you realize if our president was chosen simply by a popular vote, that those of us in these more rural and lessly populated states would have absolutely no representation in Washington, D.C.? None. Do you want to live in a country where some big wigs in coastal cities determine what's good for you? Or do you want representation? It's amazing how foolish people are when they spout off about what they see today and understand nothing because we don't know our history. And those that don't know our history are doomed to repeat it and we're doomed not to repeat the good stuff. But our founding fathers established a constitutional republic because they understood this was the absolute possible best alternative to a theocracy. And apart from God himself sitting on a throne, a theocracy isn't going to work because men are corrupt. Men have their own desires and their own pride. Our founding fathers admitted that politicians serve themselves. 
They were smart enough to know that, not stupid enough to try to tell you otherwise, like people today. And they saw a constitutional republic as the best alternative to what is, what is decreed here about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Christ. But they knew it could not continue forever. Just like the other man-made kingdoms, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome, our founding fathers knew that what they were establishing wouldn't last forever. They foresaw the days we're in today because they understood human nature. They said, hey, this constitution is great, but it's only going to work when the people governed by it are a moral and ethical people. Guys, we're not a moral and ethical people. So the Constitution doesn't work for us anymore. We live in a mob society. And it doesn't matter which party is in control. The same people are on the top and the same people are always on the bottom. And nobody ever cares about us except for our votes. That's the fact of the matter. And our founding fathers saw this and they knew it would come when the nation turned its back upon God. What we have today is all compromise. Regardless of how you feel about the president or a particular political party, wake up. It's all compromise. The presidency, the Senate, the House of Representatives, the Electoral College, it's compromise. But we don't put our hope in these man-made institutions. We understand that they are exactly that man-made and they can't continue forever. We need a Messiah. We need a King. And He's coming. And these things won't be compromised. So may our hope and our energies be for the Kingdom of Christ. Not that we shouldn't take a stand. Not that we shouldn't vote. Not, not that we shouldn't lift up our voice about issues. But guys, don't put your hope in this country and this government. Don't do it. Look for the king to come. It's all compromised. But we're looking forward to a theocracy. This theocracy where God elects the leadership will operate. We have some details of how it operates. The scriptures teach us that Jesus Christ will be the king of Israel and yet the king over the whole earth. This is not surprising when you look at biblical history. Cyrus, the king of Persia, was or the Persian Empire, uh, allowed the Jews to go back and rebuild their temple. He was also called the king of Babylon. He was the king of Babylon and yet the king of the entire Persian Empire. Jesus will be the king of Israel and yet the king over the whole earth. It tells us in Isaiah 24, 23 that God's king will reign in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem gloriously. In Mount Zion as king over the whole earth and in Jerusalem as king of Israel gloriously. We just spent some time last month as we characteristically do around the Christmas season looking at the Christmas story. Reading Luke chapter 1 and 2, Matthew chapter 1. In Luke chapter 1, the angel appears to Mary and tells her what's going to happen regarding this child conceived in her virgin womb. <clears throat> and when you read these things, there's seven shadows. These are seven things the angel says are going to happen regarding this child in your virgin womb. 
And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb. You're going to conceive in your womb and bring forth a son. You shall conceive and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great and be called and shall be called the son of the highest. Okay? So there's four shadows there. You're going to conceive and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He shall be called great and he shall be called the son of God. All four of these things were fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ when he walked this earth the first time. He was conceived and born. He was called great. His name was called Jesus in obedience to the angel. He was great and he was considered the son of God by those who followed him and believed upon him. A whole lot of Jews, especially after his resurrection. Thousands of them that the rabbis today want to kind of hide the archaeological proof of those things in Israel. But that's not the end. It goes on to say, And the Lord shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Four of those shalls were fulfilled, three are yet to be fulfilled. Just as Jesus was exactly who it was said he would be in his first advent, when he comes again, God's going to give him the throne of his father David, he is going to reign over the house of Jacob, over Israel, and of his kingdom, there will be no end. So not just as a king of Israel, but of the world. <coughs> Four of those shalls have been fulfilled. Three are coming soon. Just like the Feast of Israel. Jesus literally fulfilled the spring feast in his death, burial, resurrection, and Pentecost. And the fall feast will be fulfilled literally when he raptures his church, when Israel wakes up, when he returns and sets up his millennial kingdom. Jesus Christ, king over the whole earth and the king of Israel. Israel will be the chief nation in the millennial kingdom. Not the United States, not the European Union. These are all man-made things, not Babylon or its spirit. Not Rome, but Israel, the tiny little nation so hated by so many, will be the chief nation in the millennial kingdom. Ezekiel makes this very, very clear in chapter 37, verses 15 through 28. This follows the dry bones prophecy, where Israel is dry and weathered bones. Uh, Ezekiel sees them come together, and the bones are covered with muscles and ligaments and flesh. And Israel is restored. And then they're brought back into the land. And then God breathes life into them. And then 37, the latter part of the chapter goes on to talk about the place of Israel in God's coming kingdom. I'm not going to read this. It's kind of a long passage. But in Ezekiel 37, 15 through 28, you can go back and read that later. It talks about how God's going to do something with Israel. And it harkens back to 975 B.C. Since 975, the tribes have been divided. In the Millennial Kingdom, God's going to put those two back together. Israel and Judah will be put back together and made one. The prophet takes two sticks. One is to be the Northern Kingdom of Israel, the other the Southern Kingdom of Judah. And he puts them back together. 
Israel and Judah will be, will be unified and reunited under a king. Under a king. And guess who this king's name is? Verse 24. And David, my servant, shall be king over them. And they shall have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. So what you're going to see is Israel is reunited, all the tribes. No more northern and southern kingdom that happened after the death of Solomon. David is going to be raised up and placed on the throne again as the regent over Israel or the prince. God has a special place for David in that kingdom. Just like he has a special place for his apostles. Just like he has a special place for the Old Testament saints and the church and the tribulation saints. David is going to act as a regent over the people of Israel. Jesus is king over Israel and the earth. David is his regent acting on his behalf. Now this is not without precedent. We often saw this in the lives of the king of Judah. There was a period of time where Jehoshaphat was the righteous king of, Israel, of Judah. And he put his son on the throne four years before his death. While he was king, he put his son Jehoram on the throne as his regent. And so Jehoram's reign includes four years as a co-regent with his father. And we have to keep that in consideration when we date these things. Jesus will have a co-regent that acts on his behalf in terms of Israel. And that will be David. We see this talked about numerous times. Let's look at a couple passages and I'll wrap things up or I'll try to. Uh, Matthew, you look up Hosea 3 verse 5. Bob, Jeremiah 30, verse 9. And Jason, Ezekiel 37, um, 24 and 20. Actually, I, I just read uh, 24. Uh, verse 25, Jason. And then I'll read something from Ezekiel 34. Go ahead. Uh, uh, Hosea 3, 5. Afterward shall the children of Israel return... And seek the Lord their God and David their king, and shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. In the latter days, Israel's going to wake up and return to God and seek David their king. David will have a place in the millennial kingdom. Jeremiah 39. But they shall but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I have raised up unto them. God's going to raise up David shepherd boy king. He's going to have a place of leadership for the people of Israel in the millennial kingdom. Ezekiel 37 verse 25. And they shall dwell in the land that I have given unto Jacob my servant, wherein your fathers have dwelt, and they shall dwell therein, even they and their children and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. Okay, so David will be their prince. David will be a king, and yet Jesus is the king of Israel and the whole world. Just like Jehoshaphat was the king of Judah, and yet his son was the king. More specifically, the prince. David will be a prince over Israel in the millennial kingdom. In chapter 34, verse 24 of Ezekiel, And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David a prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. I've spoken, God says. David will be a prince among men. 
David will be a regent or a king among them. Jesus Christ will be the king over them. <coughs> Interesting details. God has a plan and a purpose for King David. If we move forward to chapters 45 to 48 of Ezekiel, God describes in detail what's going to happen to the land of Israel during the millennium. The division of the land, the temple, the temple ordinances, how the land is divided. And we're told that this prince, who is identified with David here, will actually prepare for himself and for the people sin offerings during the millennial kingdom. Well, Christ isn't going to prepare a sin offering for himself. He's sinless. But David will. He was born of the seed of Adam, raised up. There will be sin offerings during the millennial kingdom, and I'm going to explain that to you later. The Bible tells us why. Tells us why. I'll sum it up this way. Israel has turned its back on God. They forsook Him. And there are consequences. God doesn't destroy her. Doesn't give her the death sentence. But He sentences her to community service. A thousand years of community service Israel is going to do to pay for turning her back on God. <coughs> and part of that's going to be doing exactly what they were commanded to do and never did. They're going to do it. God... <coughs> Senses them to community service. And that will be David, the priest king, who will prepare for himself and the people a sin offering. A priest king is not the high priest. God is the, Christ is the high priest. It, David's going to have a ministry much like he had in his day. Remember when, they, when he sinned against God and commanded his general to number the people, to take a census? And the people were involved in this too. And God judged the land and brought plague upon the land. And when the angel of the Lord had his sword lifted up over the city of Jerusalem to effect judgment, what did David do? He rushed to the threshing floor of Arunah the Jebusite. And he made intercession for the people on that threshing floor. He built an altar and, and offered a sacrifice. And the angel's sword was stayed. David made intercession for the people as the king. That's what he's going to do in the millennial kingdom. God's steward, God's regent, his prince. We're also told that in this theocracy where Jesus is the king, David is a prince and a regent, that the 144,000 witnesses, Jewish witnesses from the tribulation period, we talked about that in Revelation 7, the Old Testament saints, the prophets, and the apostles, all of whom were despised and rejected by the nation as a whole in their day and time. Make no mistake, the prophets were despised and rejected in the Old Testament. The 144,000 will be despised, and the Antichrist will try to wipe them out. He can't do it because they're sealed. The Old Testament saints, the apostles, were largely despised by their people. They will have special governing roles in Israel's government and in Messiah's administration. So David will have a special place in Israel's governing role, as will the prophets and the apostles and the 144,000. We saw in Revelation chapter 14, verses 1 through 5, we saw that the 144,000 were gathered with the Lamb atop the ruins of Mount Zion, and that going forward, they would follow Him every day. And they would be with him in his kingdom. They have a special place. 
the train of Messiah. They are with him every day. Daniel is told in Daniel chapter 12, after seeing the entire history, he represents the Old Testament uh, uh, saint. He is told in Daniel chapter 12. Let me just turn there real quick. Actually, At the very end of the book, he's told to seal up the words of the prophecy and just to wait. Go thy way and rest until the end. And the very last phrase of the book, and you will stand in thy lot at the end of the days. In other words, Daniel, you, an Old Testament saint prophet, I have a lot for you. You're appointed for something, and one day you will stand in that lot. So just go and rest now. You've done your work. So God has a place, thy lot, for Daniel and the Old Testament saints. What did Jesus tell his disciples in Matthew chapter 19? He's very specific about their role in the coming kingdom. Matthew chapter 19, verse 28. And Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you that you which have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of His glory, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So Jesus told His disciples who were hated, Look, in the kingdom, you're going to sit on 12 thrones and you're going to help me judge Israel that has despised you. So in this theocracy, Christ is king and he has his deep state. And his deep state is loyal to him and they fulfill his will. Unlike man-made government. God also has a place for the church and a place for the tribulation saints. In the millennial kingdom. The church's concern will be executive rule and authority over the Gentile nations that survive and endure. Those that have hated us. So justice comes. These things are not important in the sense of, oh, let's go memorize and, and analyze every little detail. But they should give us hope. That God has a place. And the injustice that we see will be made right. And those who are despised for Christ's sake in this life will be honored in His kingdom. In Isaiah, those that tremble at the word of God, the prophet says, though you're despised, the day is coming when you will appear to their shame. So let's not allow the hatred and the, and the, the torment and all the things we see around us today to, to make us despair. But remember, all this has been written very, very detailed. And the Bible has proved itself true enough times with regard to detailed prophecy that we can trust all of this. And in Messiah, Jesus the Christ is escape and salvation from His judgment. There is no other escape. And in that escape is a place and a purpose in a coming kingdom. Be right with God's Messiah, His chosen one, Jesus the Christ, is to simply believe that what God says about Him is true. To believe that He died as a sacrifice for our sins. He was buried and He rose from the grave on the third day and He's coming again. To believe as Abraham believed God and to count it for righteousness. You can believe in Jesus Christ, but my question is do you believe Him? You can believe in God, so do the devils, and they tremble. 
do you believe Him? That's the difference. To believe God is to trust Him. And to trust God is to escape His judgment and eternal life. And that's to trust His anointed Messiah. If you reject Jesus, you won't believe God. Because God has anointed Jesus as the Messiah. You come to God His way. So I hope these things were an encouragement to you. We'll look at some more snapshots from the millennium next week. I want to talk a little bit about the temple uh, that God that will command the Messiah to build. And there are some encouraging things in there that give us a distant hope, as it should be for Israel as well. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this time around your word. I pray that it's a blessing and an edification to those gathered here. Thank you that in a ter- troublesome world where there are... Uh, Wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes in diverse places and all these things Jesus said would come. Think that we can come in this door and feel safe and find a refuge here. Not because we're some great warriors or people able to protect ourselves, but that because in you there is safety. And uh, I just pray for um, the food that you would strengthen us with it. Bless our fellowship. May we be an encouragement one to another. And thank you most of all, Lord, for the Messiah and for your word. We trust you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.